out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Scottish rock band. It is the one and only Gun, because I spoke to Dante Gizzi very recently to find out more about life, love, poetry, and all the other groovy stuff. Yes, they started in the late 80s and uh, toured with such people as the Rolling Stones, Bon Jovi, and lots of others. Also, um, Dante went on to have a solo career as well, but they have got live dates that are coming up at the end of 2022, so do check those out. And an, an album that is due out as well in October that we speak about. So, after several minutes of casual but interesting chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the very early formative years. It's a classic. Anyway, Dante, take it away. Um, for me, it was, um, in fact, it was in this very room because this is sort of the house we kind of grew up in. Um, this is, you know, this is my parents' house and, you know, and the TV was kind of situated over in the corner over there. and. Um, and I remember it was all grey whistle test. And I'm going back, I think it was 1983 or 84. And it was Prince live in Syracuse. And and it was a summer holidays, I remember that. And uh, and we had this old VCR and um and I got like a blank tape and I was like, no, I need to I need to record this. And basically the old grey whistle test was like a special feature length show of his, it was a, I think it was on for like an hour and a half, and I recorded it. Yes. And, and I, that was when I was kind of blown away by, you know, um, uh, a musician that, you know, that, that I hadn't ever seen someone like that before, performing like that, or being on this, with the songs, with the incredible songs, and, you know, and Wendy and Lisa and, and you know, and um, and the band, it was just, and everything was so well choreographed. It was just incredible to watch. And I remember, I remember watching it like um, uh, every single day. Like it was like, it was what, you know, and, and that kind of, that urged me just to kind of want to be in a band and, and do something like that because it just blew me away. I'd, I'd never seen anything like that in my life before. Um, yes. So, yeah, so Prince was kind of early Prince. I mean, when he opens up with Let's Go Crazy and, you know, and they slowly, you know, it's the whole sort of talking sequence at the beginning of the song, you know, so when you get to that house, Beverly Hills, you know the one, and then the band <laughs> just start kicking in and he's coming up from the you know underneath the stage and it's just it just gives me goosebumps thinking about it you know so yeah that was my kind of awakening with with uh, um with music yes well i could imagine and i do remember in the 80s well there's several, several things actually the vhs recorder was a big purchase and we used to have one oh. of those ones which had the remote control but there was a lead connected to the machine so it was a bit of a trip hazard as well but you would get a cassette which was quite expensive and you would you would really sort of value that and then sort of um yes yeah. keep scribbling bits on when you re-recorded it over it which was kind of like you didn't just yeah See, didn't have hundreds very, yeah do you remember when you used to have the clip that you had? To, it was kind of removed with um, 
there's a there's a there's a piece at the back of now that you've said that now and it's reminded me. I remember, I think it was my mum and dad's wedding video, and I think I kind of I got a wee bit of cardboard and a sellotape over the back of so that you could actually record with it. So I recorded over the your, wed, your mother's <laughs> wedding, your parents' Luckily, wedding. I think, I think other family members like aunts and uncles had a copy and stuff like that. Well, but people forget how expensive they were. I mean, you'd oh, buy, yeah, they, were, they were extortionate. You would buy sort of two or three for about five pound each. And I do remember because yeah. I used to do that. If you wanted to keep a cassette or a video, you would take out that plastic thing and then you'd have to get sellotape over it if you wanted to re-record yeah. it. It was a real gig. No one would understand what we're talking about, but it was very no, important. No, I know. <laughs> it was a very, it was a, it was a precious thing. Remind, it's funny how you reminded me of that, actually, because I used to go about doing that all the time. You know, I was like wondering why nothing would record. And it was obviously because, you know, the, the, there was a piece of plastic that was removed from the back of the cassette and and if you made sure that you put something inside that and then stuck tape over it it would it would record no problem <laughs> yes <laughs> it was important and i used to with my cassettes and very oh the videotape you'd put a little stick and you'd need your scribble try and sort of work out what was on it and then sort of come back and then you'd have to fast forward to find your little mm. bit because at that stage i think the tube had just come on and channel four and so there was some really good late night sort of stuff on channel four i remember richard Pryor live concert and it was like on at 11 there was all these warnings about the bad language and we recorded it and watched it endlessly so yeah it was a really big gig which again no one would understand who who wasn't born during that period of um yeah. being careful with money like we are now but yes but then prince actually it was interesting because i was a real indie kid and i loved all the thrash metal stuff but prince crept into my life so 87 i remember getting huskadoo album uh the, the warehouse album but there was also sign of the times and then love sexy and then was uh, probably batman and i went to a lot of those concerts about yeah. every time he did a concert from the late 80s to the early 90s going to see him and it was just like yeah it, it was just awesome uh, when you go uh, i i mean all, i only managed to get him uh, to get to see him once because he never really did performing like in scotland like in glasgow it was always kind of london or maybe I don't know what else, like Manchester or something like that. But, um, but I, I did go down by bus, you know, um, and I don't have any regrets whatsoever. But it was a Love Sexy tour. That I oh, that was the one with the stage in the middle and the car came yeah, around. The, and, the and they had a baseball, a basketball net and everything, didn't they? Yeah, and Cat was the, um, was the cat. Was yeah, Cat, cat was the Rap. Yeah, I mean, you the Rap. Don't take it too slow. <laughs> it was just genius. It and was. It, it's, you know, it was, and you can see, and, and it's only when you, you kind of, you know, as you get older and you see where, where does he kind of adopted that sort of whole look. And, it's, and his idol was always like James Brown, you know, or, you know, and the way he style, his sense, address, his song, like Sly and the Family Stone and stuff like that as well, kids and reminds me that's who he was kind of influenced by. And I kind of went back to listen to sort of all that sort of stuff and Parliament and stuff. It was it was kind of opened up like a just a web of music for me, you know. And yes, that was well, kind I of you know a lot of you know I'm primarily you know I love you know the. The whole rock thing and you know and that's you know that's all very well but I think that was my very first you know 
um, induction into sort of something that the music that that kind of took took hold of me into you know and and made me want to be a musician you know yes well I, I can remember doing very similar journey I suppose I mean there was the Jimi Hendrix kind of comparison but I do remember sort of suddenly getting into Funkadelic and Parliament yeah. and One Nation uh, Under a Groove and who says uh, a funk uh, band yeah. can't play rock and it was like these this actually one of three best concerts in my life there was Iggy Pop kind of an Elvis Costello and then there was a, a George Clinton concert I saw once oh, it uh, was amazing. Where yeah. did you see him, David? Where was well, it? I was. It was when we did a trip to Berlin once to see somebody, and I went one evening to see you know George wow. Clinton, and it was in a really small place. But he yeah. had enormous band, and there was the you know they were all in costume, and it just rocked all night. And it was just like, yeah. okay, that's that's how you do it, really, isn't it? So, oh, oh totally. It's all about putting on a show. Yes, it is. So then, God, that's just the, I know the 80s, it was slightly grim, but musically it was fantastic, wasn't it? It was, it was, it was the business. And I have to say, yeah, because I do remember just on that Prince front, I do remember that concert, because I was always amazed, he'd do a guitar solo and just throw it into the pit, someone obviously caught it. And I do mm-hmm. him sort of praising the Lord. And, you know, one of those occasions, you just wanted to believe, didn't you? You just would believe him with Prince. You know, was mm-hmm. it that the Lord gave us a talent to play music and off he oh. went on another guitar solo. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes so but as so when did you sort of think you know because i've i've just stayed to be a fan but you've obviously taken it to another level so how did your 80s progress from watching prince and purple rain well and crazy think, yeah i think um i kind of just started uh, got me right into listening to music and then and obviously with Jules, you know, my brother who plays in the band, he was kind of, he was he was a big sort of massive rock fan, you know, and and it, it was funny because they used to have the the old sort of hi-fi system set up in here as well, and it was all the vinyl, and it was just like, Jules would have like ACDC, there'd be Thin Lizzy, there would be... Um, a bit of Iron Maiden, some rainbow, and then my sister would have all the sort of pants people and <laughs> uh, ABBA albums and stuff like that. And and obviously, you know, when they're not around, you're like, um, you kind of just come in and just start listening to stuff. And I, I think, you know, I think that kind of helped me to be diverse in the way I listen to music. And I think. You know, um, and I think that's what's the one good thing about streaming services like Spotify and Amazon Music and stuff like that, is the kids nowadays can listen to any music, you know, and any style or any genre, any, you know, whatever year it is, you know, and and I think that's important. I think that's really good for, you know, but I think there was a period you know, when people just bought albums, they would just buy collectively, you know, music that they listened to. It was, you know, first and foremost, it was, you know, it was rock music or you, you were you were set in a kind of genre, a style of music that you stuck with. And that's, you know, um, but for me, I think it was kind of different. It's because I listened to ABBA. I loved a lot of the ABBA stuff and I loved a lot of ACDC stuff. You know, and and I think, um, well, when Jules had the band and stuff like that, and I was only like a 16-year-old kid, and I would sit upstairs and listen to him working on ideas. 
and um, I'd sit outside the door and he'd be like, and I'd be sat there for about two hours or something like that, just listening, hoping that he would turn around because he was in with the other members of the band. I hadn't been, I wasn't in the band at the time. And I was hoping like one night he would probably just turn around and say, come on in and just sit down, but don't say anything. Don't do anything. Um, but it never did happen. And then, <laughs> and then one time, um, the one time they kind of got, we got, well, the band got signed to AM Records back in 1987. The bass player at the time didn't want to do it. He didn't want to be involved in the band. He had enough, I think. The pressure had gotten to him to that point, and he wanted to, you know, he just wanted to get away from it. And the managers at the time had turned round to Jules and said, look, do you know anybody that's young, maybe, you know, um, and maybe keen? They don't necessarily have to be a good bass player. They just need to be keen and hungry and young. And Jules mentioned my name because, look, oh, there's my daft wee brother. He sits outside my room and listens to me playing, you know, working on ideas and stuff like that. He goes, oh, but I don't know if he'd be into it. So they asked me, and then I remember Joe showed me this bass part from one of the songs that they were working on at the time, and I kind of played along with it, and I was like, and he turned, I goes, why? I said to him, why are you showing me these bass parts for the for the songs? And he goes, well, he goes up, well, Cammy, who was a bass player, at the, you know, who, who had gone, he goes, Cammy couldn't really do those parts, he couldn't play those parts. And then that sort of, the you know, planted the seed in my end of like, he's going to ask me to join the band. Yes, and, don't blow it. And, um, but I didn't want to. I really, I was kind of, I was too shy. I was like, like, nothing falls into your lap. It's quite as easy as that. You know, I just, I, and I was like, and I was thinking to myself, God, you know, from dreaming about doing what Prince did, you know, years earlier and being on stage, and I thought to myself, God, could I actually do that? Could I actually get up? I mean, obviously, I won't be the main front man. I will just be a bass player. But even still, it's just, it just must be so nerve-wracking. And I remember um, I said to him, I goes, look, I'll be able to, to record in the studio, no problem at all. I can do that. But there's no way that I can do that and perform live. And he'd be like laughing at me and stuff like that. And he's like, oh, look, we'll wait and see. And then the management tried to influence me to, to join the band. And then I actually took in the management to come up to my house and convince my mum and dad and say, look, Dante is going to get a proper job because he's signed, he'll be signed to a, a record company. So he'll be earning a wage, a weekly wage. I think it was... Sixty-seven pounds, I think I was getting with <laughs> with the band in nineteen eighty-seven, <laughs> which was quite a lot of money at the time. Yes, and uh, and he's going to get to see the world, and he's going to you know get to go and you know and do some amazing things. And then my mum was like, "You should do it. You should do it." And I was like, "Right, okay, I'll go for it." Blind. And then I just kind of went in. You know, I had a day job. I was working. Um, an Italian delicatessen and I would you know 16 I'd start at seven o'clock in the morning finishing at five o'clock at night and then go to rehearsals from six o'clock till about 11 o'clock and I did that for a, for a few months 
so I did, you know, kind of significant kind of jail with the band and stuff like that. God, you must have been shattered. So did you come from, a, was it a musical family? I know you mentioned your brother and sister, but were your parents kind of into music at all? Yeah, well, my mum my mum was a big um, Frank Sinatra fan. And, you you know, every Saturday she'd be listening to all the sort of, the old sort of, there's a radio DJ in Scotland called Frank, I think his name was Frank Skerritt. And he, he used to play all the sort of, you know, those sort of old tunes like Dean Martin and stuff like that. And um, my dad was a massive sort of like Fats Domino fan. Right. He, he worked night shifts. He worked in a biscuit factory, my dad. And he would work, you know, night shifts. And then at the weekends, obviously, because he couldn't sleep, um, he'd be up drinking cups of tea at 2, 3 in the morning, listening to Fats Domino. Um, and you can, you could almost, you heard the music really loud, but you could also hear his, his finger tapping constantly from the bedroom upstairs. And I'm like, oh God. And I used to think that's so nice, you know, to hear that, you know, that, you know, he's getting off in the, in the music and just sitting there and drinking cups of tea because he never drank, my dad, he never drank any alcohol whatsoever. It was, yes. just, it was just full bodied cups of tar. Right. You know, um, and With then biscuits. My, uncle, my uncle who lives with us, who's blind, he he played accordion. So he was playing a lot of this sort of Italian folk songs every night and you would hear him upstairs and stuff like that. And, um, so, yeah, there was kind of a, I would say there was kind of a, you know, like a, a sort of family of, you know, of um, people that just you know, the family just loved music. Yeah, um, it was passionate. Yeah, so did you? It was all around us. I mean, Glasgow during the sort of eighties, especially there was a, there was a lot of indie pop, wasn't there? And a lot of kind of you know venues. Did you? Did your brother or did you sort of get into that world that was the Jesus and Mary Train, Primal Scream, the um, Beatles? Were they? Were, did they ever come into your orbit? And there was like, oh yeah, the Jasmine yeah. Links and the Orchids. I mean, it was famous for that uh, record label, wasn't it? Um, Alan Horn, who did Orange Juice and all that kind of world. So, so did you? Did that ever come into your consciousness? No, or was that? I, I mean, I, you know what? I did hear. Of all these bands, David, but it, it didn't—it <coughs> didn't intrigue me as much as what you know, um, as what I was listening to at the time. Um, if anything, it was like sort of the, the the old sort of Alex Harvey stuff that I would listen to of, of like the sort of genre of Scot uh, Scottish music that I kind of really—I'm sorry to say—I I was kind of a big lover of American bands, you know, and. And that was another thing I used to do. I would just sit and listen to, like, Casey Case and listen to the top 40 in America, you know. Um, but very few to, I, I didn't really... And, and that's, that's, that's not, you know, not to say that I don't dislike them. It's just that I never really got into them. And even... I'm not talking about even at the 80s. I'm talking about even present day. You know, I, yes. I, was, I was much... I know it's a sad thing to say that I was much more influenced by a lot of American music, you know, um, as well as bands like Led Zeppelin, who who I always kind of assumed or thought they were kind of an American band, you know. I've, the sound of them, the style of it. God, look at the Stones. They sound more American, you know. Yes. 
Yes. Know, <laughs> you know, it's... Um, so you, so in the just, 80s, we suddenly got the big MTV thing, didn't we? Though I didn't get to MTV. But oh, yeah, yeah. suddenly the hair metal bands came out. And then it was also stadium rock with people like Bruce Springsteen and, you know, Bon Jovi's Living on the Prayer and Aerosmith. Yeah. And did the, did all those bands sort of... Yeah, they influenced it big time. Uh, definitely Bon Jovi was a big influence in the Slippery Wet album. Um, and I remember... Um, well, we toured with Bon Jovi, so we did. We did a tour back in um, mid nineties, and it was great. It was great fun. Um, yes. But yeah, I loved. Uh, yeah, I, I'll tell you another band that I really did like, and back in the day, and it was Def Leppard. That I thought, you know, I loved. I loved that whole sort of hysteria album. I loved Animal. I loved the, all these songs. But again, that was all. It was all Mutt Lang that did. You know, did all the sort of recording and pretty much all the all the writing of that album. Um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, those definitely Aerosmith, definitely the Pump album that I just sounded absolutely incredible for me. You know, and I went to see them on that tour and it blew my mind. And I got the opportunity to meet them because we we did win an MTV award back in '94. I've got it somewhere, but I don't know where it is. But um, but we when um, was it ninety four? Yeah, best cover version for for um, Word Up at the time. Oh and God, it, classic, wasn't it? We did yeah, love Word Up, um, and I was always kind of proud because it was it was up against Wet Wet Wet, Love Is All Around. Mm. So it was, and. Um, it's quite funny the story behind that, because they said to MTV, "Look, the only condition that will come to the MTV Awards is that if we're guaranteed the award." And they went, "Well, no, you're not guaranteed any award, <laughs> you know." And we got it. I think Asa Bass as well was up for it as well. But I remember meeting Steve Tyler there, and I was like, "Wow, what?" Just chatting to him, and Prince was there as well, David. And I, and um, and he was like from here to the other side of the room from me. I mean, he had like heavy-handed security guards all around him, and I was like, "Should I? Should I? Should I go over to him? Should I?" And I just didn't. I didn't. I was too scared. Partly because I just, I'm too scared. Sorry, um, I was too. I'm just going to end that call for the last minute. Oh, blimey, you've gone. Oh, you hit the wrong one, didn't you? Jesus Christ. I paused it. Yes. Oh, no, that's, I'm so sorry. No, that's fine. I'm, yes, I'm always, whenever I see the light flash on, I never think, I always think, is it the green or red? Quickly, make a decision, David. Uh, no, I know. I should have just left it. I shouldn't have. I, I thought I was hitting the red button, and then not. It's just went to phone call. But anyway, as I was saying, yeah, I was too scared because I just didn't think what kind of person he was going to be like, Prince. I thought, God, if he's, if he's, you know, if he's not a nice guy, how would, you know, that would kill me for the rest of my life to know that. Yes. I, didn't, I just didn't want to know that. I just wanted to believe him as like this sort of icon God. But then Jules had turned around to me and goes, oh, there's Steve Tyler. Can you get the autograph for me? And I went, I ah, no problem. And I went over with Steve Tyler. Steve Tyler's autograph. 
<laughs> yes, I know. Prince had a sort of aura, didn't he? Really, which was different. So then, yeah. So just so it was amazing. You had this kind of amazing, so much interest from the record label at this stage in the eighties, which people probably can't believe now, can they? But um, yes, they had so much confidence in the band. So that must have felt like a huge, you know, confidence boost for everybody within it. But it was strange that various members wanted to leave at the same time or had left. Uh, with within the gun band, yeah. Uh, well, well, there was a couple. There was at the time after we did the Stones tour, and it, it was like um, our drummer and our guitarist, um, Baby and Scott. They just kind of, I think, they wanted to go on and do their own thing, and uh, and that's the thing when people get a wee bit of success it can kind of get to their heads a wee bit. Uh, yeah. That's well, anyway, I, and they just thought, you know what, we can go on and do the stuff ourselves rather than and play with a band, which we kind of went, right, okay, if you if you want to do that, you can do it. It's up to you. Guys, yeah. we're not going to stop you from doing it. And unfortunately, they didn't really do much with the, with any of their stuff afterwards, and I, I don't know, they might have not, they might have had some regrets. Uh, that's something we'll probably never know. But yeah, but just bands do that, you know. If you get that wee bit of success, it goes to their head, uh, um, and that's just think, yeah, we kind of had that multiple times down. The, and it's, we're not the only band that's ever suffered that. You know, there's tons of bands out there that. You must have felt, and also, but you got the first album, which went really well, and then the yeah. the Stones tour as well. You must have felt like in three years, four years of your life, you'd gone from not being in the band to being in the band to suddenly yeah. the biggest band. I was like, oh, is this a norm? I thought, oh, is this, is this normal? Well, this must be normal. Well, you get success and for your first album, well, that's pretty cool. That's what kind of how I felt. That's the naivety that I felt, you know. Um, because I think when we were recording the first album that it was going to be successful. No, I didn't. But I knew there was good songs in it. I knew there was really good songs in that album. I knew if people heard those songs, if I got the opportunity, if, if like radio picked up on it, and sure enough, Radio One did. Radio One, like you know, championed the band, and Better Days was never off the radio, you know, and it, and it was like wow. It is getting the recognition that it should do, because it is such a good song. Yes. You know? and, um, but you just don't think like, oh, do you know? But in, the, in those days as well, you've got to remember, when a and signed us, the record company signed us, they turned around and said to us, this is a five-year album, five-album deal, five-album five deal, hopefully in five years. So basically, the, it was all about a building process for the band. So they were like, first album, just, you know, let people know that you're there. Second album, get your foot in the door. Third album, break it open, you know. And it, it was all like, which was brilliant. That's what it was like in those days. You don't get that. It's unfortunate you don't get those opportunities now. No. You know? there you and go. in fact, you've got to have, you know, for a, I feel 
gutted for bands, up and coming bands that are trying to be successful and try to do stuff, you know. And you know, record companies are probably asking them, you know, well, what's your social media like? How many <laughs> Facebook fans have you got? How many Instagram fans have you got? Yes, this is true. So when you, I mean, were you at all kind of at that stage? Because I, I sort of find the sort of the change in that decade quite interesting, you know, in the sense that we'd sort of suddenly got that rave culture came in. And then we had the grunge scene that came in with Nevermind. And then there was a bit longer, you know, uh, along the line was Britpop. Did any of that affect the band at all? Yes, it did. A hundred percent. Yeah, it did. I think I would say that the whole grunge scene did. Dude, I think it's like they kind of kicked it out of the ballpark, you know, that the whole sort of rock scene had just disappeared. And I was always, God, I don't know, I was always curious. Uh, one of the, the albums, I, don't, I can't remember what album it was off, but um, yeah, I do remember the song. And I think it came out, it was a Bon Jovi, and I was like, I'm really curious to know how they're going to sound after this whole, grunge scene has taken over the whole sort of rock music sort of scene. Yes. And they came out with Keep the Faith. I don't know if you remember that. Keep well, the I mean, Faith. It's and got it, a fantastic funky guitar, doesn't yeah. it? It sounds kind of quite ravey and actually uh, it's, it's, one, it's one of those things, it's one of those tracks I can listen to now quite happily and still feel yeah. like it's it's not embarrassing. Like, yeah, it's still, it's, and it's probably when I think of it in my head, I think, oh God, it probably stands its te the test of time as well, that song. But, you know, I think for us, we kind of felt, God, that whole sort of rock scene of British rock bands has kind of disappeared. Yes. And that was, you know, and that was one of the things that we kind of wanted to do after that was like, well, we were always big fans of NXS. As well, we loved like sort of the Listen Like Thieves album, the Kick album, stuff like that, and that's why we went into the studio to go and record uh, our last album from the back, from, you know, from the early days. And that swagger, yeah, uh, no, it was the old one four one album, right? It was the one after swagger. Um, it was old one four one six three two six treble one. It was. Um, yeah, very, very memorable title for an album. <laughs> but, <laughs> yes, but we both... good, do you know the only good thing about it is is that fans could actually phone up. You know, obviously, you've got to remember there's no there's no social media, there's no Facebook, there's no interaction between you know um, fans and bands in those days. So you could phone that number up, and you could either speak to me or you could speak to Mark. You speak to other members of the band, tell you what's happening, tell you the tour. Because it was only really the way to find out about what was going on. You know, you didn't know any other way, you know, unless it was kind of on TV or or it was on the radio or something like that. We don't have, like, Facebook where you could, you know. So I thought that was the only good idea. But we went in to work with Andrew Farris on that album, you know, from NXS. And that's, we, we, wanted, we wanted to have an album that sounded like Kick. And it just turned out to be pants, big <laughs> pants, big smelly pants. It was shit. And <laughs> the demos were great. The demos were fantastic as well. Um, and I kind of, we, Jules and I kind of worked on the demos and we just like, these sound really good. And then we'd go and work and 
show them to Andrew Farris and and even to a certain extent the singer Mark at the time. And they were like, all right, okay. And they just completely changed the songs. And it was like, no, this isn't it. We're not feeling this. And it got to a point where the record company were like getting involved in our management team. And they were saying to themselves, well, look, we've spent so much money on this recording. You're five songs into the album, you know, because it was obviously, you know, in those days, again, recording an album was really an expensive process, especially when you were going residential stuff like that so um so they were like no we're too far in to, to back out now and you know there was times when we were in this i think it was sam sam west i think it was down down in london somewhere outside london and there was a couple of occasions where jules and i were just like oh, do you want to just drive back up to glasgow this is fucking rotten this is rubbish this and he'd be like yeah yeah let's do it no we can't do that no we need to just our time and it was an album that we just didn't really appreciate and we didn't you know even although we loved the demos but everybody else around us was saying no we're too far into it you know just go with it we can deal with it later there must have been such a change between going in to record swagger and then the the you know that follow-up it must have yeah. oh, it, was, it was so different and i think that's the problem i think because we were so concerned about of of um of how the music was changing you know how the music culture was changing how it was becoming more you know darker and heavier and grungier and you know i, I think that didn't suit the old sort of style of gun you know um and i thought that's what we were concerned and we were overly concerned about that not to mention the bloody you know that it was the you know the just like prior to releasing that album, um, and it was the um, it was the Dumblane shootings. Do you remember? Oh, the yeah, Jesus yeah. Christ! I think it, uh, yeah, we were bringing there. I think that happened in either the February or the March of ninety six, ninety seven. I can't remember, but yeah. And then obviously everybody was like, "Shit, the coming Like, should we go with the type, the name of the band, Gun?" Should we just call it G.U.N, you know, as abbreviated to Great Up North? And so a lot of these things kind of play in your head. Gun yes. was, was always just a word to us. It wasn't anything to do with, like, you know, wanting to shoot or, or, or anything like that. It was three letters and it was very, it's kind of hard sounding word and it all, and it, we knew that it could be spoken and said the world over, you know, without anybody making any mistakes with it. You know, it was, it's quite an easy name to remember. Yes, absolutely. It was. So did you have a moment where you just all sat down and said, to quote Jim Morrison, this is the end of the man? This is the end. I think, um, yeah, we did, we did that. I think it was just before we did... Uh, before we did... What was it now? The it was the last team in the park that we did, ninety seven, I think it was. It might have been, or and uh, yeah, we knew we were going to kind of like like we're calling that a day, and that had been ten years, and ten years was quite a bit of you know a, a bit of time for us at that point, and you know, and getting to spend that amount of time doing something that you love was kind of very fortunate. 
Yes. I think I think from from all these interviews that five years is often one kind of period of time. Ten years is actually very good. Normally, yeah. you know, I find you know with especially the indie bands from the eighties, you know, there was a twelve month honeymoon period. Get a single, get it on, yeah. you know, something like John Peel. Get the session, get the album, get the little transit band, get around the you know the countryside and all the little indie nights around the country. And then you know the second album. That's when the band starts to kind of. Yeah you know either gel or start to hate each other and by the third album everyone's just had enough because <laughs> i think with with a lot of bands they'd never actually make any money that's the other problem they've never yeah. even seen the money so it's a bit like oh. we're not even doing it for the money so i can't you know and it's just like i can't get in the transit van and play in front of 300 500 people anymore so you know and and i think inspiration has kind of gone you know unless you're david bowie who somehow can seem to i mean he's made some really terrible albums in the 80s but you know at the same time you know he he did sort of work through i suppose oh, and that's... he was incredible no matter what i mean obviously he kind of he could just be as you know as you know just trying at different things is it you know like I, what was the band that he no, the, um, Tim Machine. Tim Machine, no. And then seem to listen back to that something that's actually really good. I really, loved him. really hard sounding and really nah. I mean, he was a genius. David Bowie was up there for me. You know so he, well he had the Hunt brothers, didn't he? Sales and uh, um, um Tony Tony and uh, Hunt Sales. Yeah, um, that's who great. who were who were in Iggy Pop's Lust for Life band. So um they had a great sound. You know, that was the that was the rhythm section. And then they had a really good guitarist. So, you know, I think I think oh, that the, the for me doing that was that he got stuck in those two albums after let uh, after Let's Dance. He did Tonight and Never Let Me Down, which were really not good. And again, you said it, you know, he did the demos for Never Let Me Down, thought, oh, these sound good. And then he got to the studio and the whole thing just didn't work. And I think he was like, I've had enough of this project. You can finish it and I'm just going to walk away, you know, do the tour. And and then Tim Machine started. And I think that was his kind of working through that creative blockage, really. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I totally agree. I so did to, you uh, did you see did you see Moon Age Daydream by any chance? No, I'm going to go and see my brother Jules when he sees it. It's amazing. Have you seen it, David? Yes, yeah, I have seen it. it. It's a There's real a lot trip. Of There's unseen footage, but it's just the kind of an interesting trip. There's not. It's not like a documentary, which is a relief because yeah. we've seen enough people saying what they thought of him. But it's just more the. It's more of an artistic kind of adventure by the director who obviously is paying a homage to David Bowie so I kind of wanted to go even further but it kind of stops um around the 90s I suppose and then it quickly uh-huh. you know but the 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 70s stuff is is kind of mind-blowing you'll, you'll love it you'll really oh, love it I'm definitely going to go and see it I'm 100% I'm going to go and see it I've just been because I was in London <coughs> visiting my girlfriend there at the weekend there, and it was just out and she's like, do you want to go to the cinema? I goes like, eh, can we go and see Manage? And she's like, that, oh, no, can we go and see the George Clooney film? I'm like, fuck that. We're not, and I just went, no, nah, we're just not going to see any movie. Let's just go yeah. to the pub. <laughs> to Pizza Express. It's always cheaper. <laughs> um, yes. So then when, when the band finishes, how do you then navigate this? Because you're obviously in your late 20s, I guess. So what do you then have to do to sort of navigate the next period? Well... We wanted, Jules and I just wanted to get time away from it and just to get a breather from the music industry because it was just, for us, it kind of felt like as though it was building up. And 
with you know not just not just what what happened with that album but with the whole Andrew Farris thing the management like had sided with you know the record company and as well as Mark our singer at the time who I don't know I mean I'm not going to say he was pushing for an easy life but but I just knew in his heart of hearts he was the 100% sure, but he just went along with what they wanted. So we were just kind of scunnered, totally scunnered by the music industry. So we went out and just, we had a bit of money put aside, and then we opened up a wee bistro, a wee restaurant for about five or six years. We had it from about 1999 to about, two, no, well, fact, no, yeah, 1999 to about 2002, 2003. And during that period, I kind of, you know, Jules and I just kind of continued working in songs. We would work in the bistro from time to time, which was kind of nice. Yeah. Kind of, I kind of liked that. At first, I found it quite nerve-wracking, talking to customers and just coming back down the earth. But it was nice. It was good to know people and it, and it helped. I don't know, it helped with the sort of songwriting process for me, you know, because we ended up going on to do and write, you know, I had another band called El Presidente that came out in 2004, 2005, um, where I was, because, you know, that's where I kind of began singing and sort of main vocals and stuff like that. And it was, and that was, you know, going back to the whole Prince sort of genre that was the sort of the style of that sort of um that music and it and it was really good you know i'd really got sent to sony bmg and um you know mike pickering was the guy that signed us from you know um the hacienda days and was that on uh, deconstruction records yeah what no, no what label oh tell. yeah you yeah, you said BMG, didn't you? I uh, sorry, I uh, BMG. <laughs> yes. Well, it was Sony, Sony BMG, and we had a bit, of, you know, we had a bit of success with that. Now with the UK, it was like it was really popular in like <laughs> places in Japan. I mean, we spent tons of time over there. It was that was a great experience, and I think our single was "Without You," which. Um, was originally meant to be a gun song and we had it for such a long time but we just knew that we it was going to be tough for mark to sing because it's it was a lot of um edgy sort of screaming vocals in it um but uh yeah that was like one of the most played songs on radio in japan in fact it was number one most played song in japan radio for about a month Fantastic! Um, that is yeah. so good. There's so many. That's, there's so many that bands was... that kind of are big in Japan. That yeah, you know, that's, 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 that's that. Yeah. And what was it like st- stepping up to the mic and not no longer being back well, there on the bass? Yeah. Well, that see, that was one of the other things, and it's it's funny because you're talking about that now. But I've just seen posts of people just being feeling feeling like they've been shortchanged by the whole Ian Brown thing at the moment. I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like just, well, well, with my, my, my instance, that was, um, and have you heard of King Tut's Wawa Hut? Yes. Kind of a sort of famous sort of club, but, um, but yeah, so I did, 
I did a one night only show and performed four songs. Eh, but eight songs or something. But I had it rammed. It was like 300 people. And this was my first ever on stage singing vocals, being a singer of, but no band, just a back and CD. <laughs> and I think, I think the majority of fans loved it. You know, I think they did. Because I think they just wanted to hear the songs. But I was like always thinking to myself, like throughout the course of the day when I was going to do the show and, and even at Soundcheck, and I'm like, what the fuck do I do? You know, when it comes to a solo, or would they just stand there or just oh, yeah, Jesus. something there to look at, you know, there, there's no one there to bounce off. So obviously the concept of that, I mean, you could smoke and you know, bars at the time, but obviously being El Presidente, I would just have this big cigar <laughs> that I would smoke in between and just blow smoke <laughs> and then go back to the vocal. Um, and that was that was really nerve-wracking because I hadn't done it before. Um, let alone you have a band, it helps you. It's you know, you you've got a team around you, all sort of and fan, you know, like the crowd, they can focus and the drummer, they can focus in the, you know, the guitarist playing a guitar solo or whatever. Yes. But I you're know. just you on the stage with nothing uh, else apart from a big cigar. You must have had a very good shower when you got home because you must have been absolutely your adrenaline must have been out to the back. Uh, but it was it was funny. I do remember somebody because I fucking what a lot of shit that is. Somebody had sent a message or something I I don't know, and it was like, you know, I came all the way from Aberdeen to see <laughs> see the band, and it's just Dante on, and it's just Dante on vocals. Um, yes. But I, and I was like, oh, like, I'm really sorry, but I'm sure he would have appreciated that I didn't have a band at the time. That was the thing. I never had but, a band. But I think with Ian Brown, he does look a bit like an old man on stage, doesn't he? On on this stage on his own, which yeah. is, you know, it looked a bit. I I haven't seen any film, but I just saw the photographs, and it was like, oh dear, you're not Stormzy, are you? <laughs> no, I know. So that was bad. That was not good. Anyway, that's that's the future. I suppose it keeps costs down. And so then, as as the decade was trucking through, did you when did when did you decide the band needed to get back together again? Well, we did we did a couple of like uh, um, sort of charity events, and there was a famous one. I don't know if you've heard of the Nordoff Robbins charity event. Yes, and they gave us. I basically, they gave us a they gave us an award um, for like sort of best Scottish rock band, and and it was kind of. Um, and we were there and you know, picking up the award. And then, and I think I remember Jules, and, and I don't know if you, it was a DJ called Tom Russell, so like well known sort of rock DJ. And he was there, and there was another guy from a band called Little Angels called Toby Jepson. Yes. And he got involved, and kind of Tom Russell had sort of said, like, you guys should get back together again, but maybe, you know with Toby on vocals and stuff like that. And then it kind of went, oh, that may be quite a good idea to get back in there and play the old songs. In fact, I'd love to play bass guitar again. You know, after taking the time to do the whole El Presidente thing, it's like quite nice to just go back to playing bass guitar. 
and then that kind of start, started the ball rolling, you know, for us. Um, we did a cut. I think we did a couple of VPs, and 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 I think I think Toby was just like, oh, no, I don't really, you know. I think he felt like as though had taken the ban as far as he could take it, you know. But for us, it was different. It didn't feel like that at all. It was like I think we still after after that album that, that we released with Andrew Farris, I think down. Heart of Hearts, I think Jules and I still felt that we had potential to write some great songs and still had the potential that, you know, we felt there was still unfinished business in regards to it, you know. Yes. Did you, and you never fell out, because that's, you never fell out with your brother in any of this period. Oh, all the time, I do. Aye. Do you? Italian. Aye, David. Of course, we're Italian. We fall out all the time, you know, we just argue all the time. And, but we always kind of work together. I don't know, it's hard when you say it's, a, it's like, remember you used to get the knuckles, love and hate, love and hate. Yes. <laughs> I do, that's it. Love and hate. But, but you, uh, just, you just always held together, because most uh, most brothers in a band, it, well, it never works, does it? It really doesn't. No, of it doesn't, no. But that's no. amazing. You know, that is fantastic. So when you got back, did you think, right, let's let's not just get back and do the old material. We're going to get a new album out. Yeah, well, that was one of the stipulations because I remember Jill saying, because look, look, now that Toby's left, do you want to sing? Do you want to do vocals? I'm mean, like, okay, you know what? I, I, I mean, it takes a wee bit of persuasion because I, I always, even though I had been in the band from the very beginning, from the very start, and did a lot of the songwriting and did a lot of the melodies and you know, because I, I would have the, the eight track set up in my room and, it, and I would just kind of work in ideas and stuff like that, even like I do now. But um, I said, well, only in one condition, I think we need to release a new album to, to kind of put a stamp on it. Because no matter what, no matter what you do, no matter how good you are, a singer, you'll always be compared to, always be compared to, no matter. I mean... And I think that guy, I can't remember his name, but the guy that had taken over from Freddie doing the Queen stuff. Yes. You know. Adam. Uh, Is it Adam? Yeah, Adam. Lambeth. Uh, uh, well done. Well done. He does a fantastic job at it. He's incredible. Yes, absolutely. It's, you, know, you know, people are going to say to him, it's like, oh, he's no Freddie. No. Of course he's no Freddie. You know, and... Like when Sammy Hager took over from Dave Lee Roth or when Brian Johnson taken over from um, Bon Scott, you know, it's, you know, there's a lot of, you know, it's just, I think it's, it's the songs that are an important factor here. I think when it first happened, it all, always seemed a bit odd, but then it hadn't, there'd, there'd been no sort of example of any bands who suddenly lost a few members and then got a few extra members in. So I think the Bon Scott was one of the first ones. It's like, well, the band will have to break up. And it's like, obviously, they were quite young at the time. And it was like, no, we'll just get another singer. But it almost seemed a bit sacrilege, didn't it? It's yeah. like, you can't do that. Of course it does. And now I feel kind of comfortable in my own skin with it all. You know, I do, um, because I think more so than ever, I've, that's now probably 
four albums that I've released with the original vocals and original songs. Yes, absolutely. Since, you know, since the, the beginning, you know, which is, and obviously been kind of doing it the longest, you know, I feel like as though, well, I don't, you know, I, I've earned my stripes, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so you've got new material coming out, though, haven't you? This is the main thing. Well, this is the album that we've got coming out now is, um, is sort of semi-acoustic versions of all the sort of singles that we had released in the past. And we did that um, for a reason, because it was, we felt, um, during the pandemic, because all of these songs were kind of written in, well, not written, obviously, because of, you know, the old sort of songs, but they were recorded here in this house, you know, um, during that time when we're all kind of stuck indoors. And I thought, because Joe's and I were like thinking, like, what? We didn't want to try and do any sort of, we didn't feel like as though we were wanting to do any original stuff. You know, I just thought it was too, it was just too much to kind of take in, to, to write. Didn't feel creative enough to do it. Because all that was going in the back of my head, David, was that, you know, if we do manage to work on these songs and spend a lot of time getting the right songs, then who's really going to get to hear them? Because we're in the middle of a pandemic, we don't yes. know how long, we don't know how long this is going to last. We can't showcase it. We can't perform it live. You know, the only thing is we just drop it out and put it out there, and that just kind of made me feel like I don't feel any urge to write new material for that reason. You know, I want to be able to let people hear it. So that's why we did this acoustic album, and partly because we had already done what again we'd done a um, better days sort of acoustic sort of laid back version, and we did it for Nordolf Robbins, and that kind of set the ball rolling for us to go on and continue right um, with these songs, and you know so it's so it's got like word up and you know all the sort of singles better days, and there's a new track in there called Backstreet Brothers, which is really really good. It's you know, um, it's it's kind of the sign of things to come. But we have like, you know, a, a probably about 10, 11 songs ready to record for the new album, which we're hoping to bring out sort of maybe March, um, April time next year. Right. So with that compilation that I mentioned at the beginning, the one with a lot of your covers on, that's, that's loaded. That was from about two or three years ago. I think that was so. that was 2019, wasn't it? With the bonus and all the classics. Yes. So when did you record all those amazing covers, which we love so much? <laughs> um, those were recorded. Yeah, probably around about 2018. Right. 2018, yeah, 2018-19. Yeah. And how come you didn't do any Prince covers? Ah, <laughs> good, good. Uh, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Although I did do um, a few with El Presidente. I don't know. I think I think it was like I'm not too sure why I didn't do it because I did a real mean cover version of Raspberry Beret. Yes, um, which was fantastic. But 
No, I think I wanted a different challenge. I think it was different songs, like Blondie and sort of New City Blue and stuff like that, and obviously The Clash. These are all favourite songs of Jules and I, you know, that we listen to. And the Rihanna one is quite, a, quite an unusual one to do, but... Oh, it's it a classic. Fun. We love it. it was, when when it you were doing, when you were doing the front, yeah, you know, when you were doing El Presidente, did did that give you a huge amount of confidence being able to do that, and then coming oh. back to the band? Was that the oh, was that your kind of apprenticeship? But it actually was yeah. pretty successful, wasn't it? Yeah, no, a hundred percent. Oh, it was amazing. I mean, I I kind of obviously I was thinking like, oh, even you know, that's we got girls in the band as well, and and. And I wanted the band to be like Prince, you know. It was like we had a girl drummer, um, Dawn. She was fantastic, and and Laura playing keyboards and singing backing vocals, and Johnny and, and uh, Thomas and guitars. But it was such a vibe, such a great vibe, and yeah, I had so much fun with that. Like, you know, I just remember doing some amazing, great TV shows as well, which were really cool. Yes, like, we did like like over in France and stuff like that. We'd be doing like real sort of hip, trendy shows. Like like we're on the stage and the the strokes there, and, and it was just it was unbelievable. It was good fun, and there was a I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called Taratata. It's a famous French TV show, and we played it with a band called Indochine. You may have not heard of them, but Indochine are like the French version of Depeche Mode. Right. They're like, yeah, they're like, um, but they're massive. They play like stadiums. And we did, um, oh God, my brain's like first. Yeah. And we did a cover of Bowie's, oh no. Yeah, oh, I love you so. Well, that's the game. I mean, <laughs> I love you so. Oh, um, no, not Gingini. Gingini, yes, it's Gingini. My God, this is like pop quiz. This is good, actually. We're doing well, actually, between two people, me in my late 50s. Yes. But do you, did you sort of get a bit surprised by the success? Because often when a band splits and someone has a solo project, it doesn't it doesn't sell, end up playing Glastonbury Festival, does it? Yeah, we did Glastonbury. I know, but were you a bit surprised by that kind of like, wow, I've been in this band, you know, the first couple of years, yeah. Autumn, the Rolling Stones, then Bon Jovi, and then, then I've got a solo project, which normally dies a death, doesn't it? But that becomes huge, you know. So were you a bit surprised by this? Uh, do you know the first one that we did was that, the, the Glastonbury one, um, we got rained off. On oh, it. God, yes. And I just remember like three or four in the morning, like, and I could just see the town pouring and stuff. And we couldn't get our van to the we couldn't get our van to the stage, which was like half a mile down, because it was just covered in mud. And then we were told, look, I just, you know what, can't um we need to cancel you guys and then we will invite you back. And we did, we opened up the main stage in 2007, I think it was. But yeah, doing doing that, and then I think we did we did mature, we did Oasis as well. That was bizarre. We played with Oasis in the Usher Hall in Edinburgh. And I remember, like, Noel Gallagher coming up to us and he's like, oh, my God, man, because I, I love that song of yours, um, 100 Miles an Hour. And it was like, 
He goes, I love the video for it. It's really bizarre. I remember he's like telling me he's of his morning of waking up in his hotel room. Because and the first thing was this video, and I, I was still hung over. I'm like, it was freaking me out. But the song's brilliant, man. <laughs> and then that was that. And then we did this morning with um I can't remember who it was at the time it was hosting it, but but anyway, on the on the sofa getting interviewed was um in front of us was Simon LeBon. And then Simon LeBon comes over to me. I'm like, what's he coming over to me for? Because we were already set up ready to perform. And he came over because I can I just shake your hand. He goes like, yeah, yeah. Because I just want to say you've got what a fantastic looking band you've got. And I was like, oh, thanks very much. Because I love the single as well, but wow, your band looks amazing. <laughs> I thought, wow, that's such an amazing thing to see. God, that is yeah. amazing. And did Gunn, or you said you were big in Japan on that one, but did Gunn sort of travel well around the Europe and America? And yeah, far- well, we did. I mean, and not again, back in those days, you know, David, we, yeah, we toured extensively in the States. We did like two, uh, two big tours, which was like just, oh, it was just toilet gigs, you know, like two months at a time, you know, and one of them we actually got cut short because we had to jump onto the, we got off of the Stones tour. You know? Right. That, yes. was, that, that was great. <laughs> that was great to get getting like shortened and stuff like that. But yeah, Spain, Spain was always a massive market for gun. Portugal was a massive market for, for gun as well. And so was Germany. Germany was great, you know, especially in the Swagger album with the with the Word Up single and we were playing sort of like arenas, not arenas, but, you know, like your two, two and a half thousand capacities sold out, you know, and... Well, I always remember Lemmy from Motorhead saying that Germany kept the band going when no one else wanted to, you know, bother yeah. with them. So it was kind of a big market. And I, I sort of know I'd done quite a few interviews with people who just always say, oh, God, the German market, like people like Fish from Marillion or yeah. the Godfathers bands who just have to go to Europe, do kind of that 30, 30 gigs in 30 days, get the transit yeah. van, whiz around the whole Europe. But, you know, Germany, they always said the fans are amazing. They all buy CDs probably three or four each to give to their friends and lots of merchandise. And it's like, you know, right, we can keep the band going for a bit longer then, you know. But it is kind of amazing, the the economics of a band and and sort of just keeping it going. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm going back to that song. It's Rebel Rebel, wasn't it, Gene Chimmy? It's Rebel Rebel. But, yeah, I, I mean, see, Germany, David, I think it, there's no hears and graces with them. They just keep it nice and simple. The fan base, you know, if they like you, they like you. I mean, they loved days of David Hasselhoff, you know, he was massive over there. Mm. You know, but that that's who they're into and that's what they like. They don't, you know, oh, no, that's too cool for me. Or that, oh, that, that's not cool enough for me or whatever. You know, it's it's just what they, they like the music that they listen to and that's it. And that's the way it should be anywhere you go, you know. And that's what I loved about playing shows in Spain and stuff like that. Yeah. Spain was fantastic. one of the best audiences I've ever played to, you know, out with Glasgow is Madrid. Madrid yes. is incredible, incredible place to play. It is and amazing. When you're hearing these fans singing the songs back to you, word for word, it's unbelievable. Um, so what was it like seeing the Ronan Stones every night on that? Was it the the 
the steel wheels. Yeah, uh, Urban Jungle was steel wheel. Steel wheels was the American side of the tour, and Urban Jungle was the European side. I think. Yeah, because you uh, used to jump from like small gigs to right. We we now sort of. Oh, that blew my mind. That blew. Oh, yeah. That's that's the weirdest thing ever. And what was it like seeing, you know, these members who had been in, you know, from the early 60s, late 50s, you know, the way they operated and their kind of entourage? What was that? What was it like for you guys? It was it was just surreal. Um, I remember Baby, Baby, our guitarist, he, he, was, he was the biggest... Rolling Stones fan. I mean, he was only 17 or 18 at the time, but he was the biggest Rolling Stones fan, like, ever, ever. And for me, doing the Stones tour, I, there was no like Prince for me. <laughs> it was like, yeah, the Stones tour, I mean, uh, they're big, they're a massive band, but you only kind of truly appreciate it when you're actually there with them. And, and it was... Um, I think we we cut the tour short in America. We were meant to do two two nights in LA. Um one one for the sort of record company and the and the press and stuff like that, and one for just the fans. And because we had to cut it short, we had to leave on a certain day or the day after we we ended up doing a matinee show and an evening show. So one for the fans. And then, and then doing those gigs, I think it was like the whiskey, the whiskey at Google right. in LA, and then we flew from LA to Rotterdam the next the next morning. Blimey! Completely jet lagged. Came off. I uh, went into you know went to airport cabins. Didn't get did we get a sound? I don't know. We might have got a wee bit of a sound check, and just. I was like thinking, this is the most bizarre thing ever. Like I've been on a flight for like twelve hours. You know, I think we flew from. That's what it was. We flew from LA to London, London to Rotterdam, and it was just. And I was like, this is this is just weird. I can't get my head around this. And we were in the port cam, and then I remember, like, you know, the port. I've got my back to the window, and and then I remember. Jerry, our manager, who was a bit of a wind-up merchant, just wind up everybody up. We were all kind of sitting. And he goes, like, here's Rab, who's the other manager. Here's Rab coming towards us with, with Mick Jagger. And I was like, I'm not even going to bother looking around. <laughs> because I just don't believe him. He goes, I'm like, don't, you just want me to look around. It's a lot of shit. And then sure enough, Rab came in uh, with Mick Jagger. And he just welcomed us on at the tour. I was like, thanks very much for, for joining the tour, guys. Really appreciate you, Scott. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake, wow. That is so, so nice of him, you know, to do that, you know. And then a couple of couple of nights further, further on, and I think we were in somewhere in Berlin. Um, oh, no, it was Munich. It was Munich we were we were in and, and we were like in this really cool exclusive club, lots of hot girls, you know, and, and we had the bar cottoned off to us and Jagger comes in, you know, and he stands next to me and I'm like looking at him and think, and I'm just, I just said to him, I goes like, he goes like, 
I said to him, I goes, look, can I can I ask you a question? He goes, yeah, what is it? He goes, he goes I, see, because there were so many bands, David, that got picked, they were up for getting this tour. I mean, there was like Susan the Banshees, there was tons of bands. Yeah. Tons of and um, I said to him, I goes, are all the bands, why did you pick us? You know, what? what? And he goes, uh, well, you kind of reminded me of us when we first started it. And I thought, wow, that is amazing. That's such a sweet thing, he said. I said, look, can I buy you a pint? And he touched like, no, it's all right, it's a free bar. And I'm like, that's <laughs> a free bar. But that was the thing. That, and I know what I know what he meant by that because he in those days obviously it was all fax machines. So so when you kind of got like offered the tour, he, they kind of sent out this sort of generic fax. What do you need for the tour? So I, I'm imagining I'm imagining bands that are going forward for it. Like we need this, we need that, you know. Not like red carpet treatment, but just like we need extra for this. We need this is the sound that we want. We want that sort of meant pay. We want these lights, etc. And we just sent a fax back saying we will take whatever you can give us. And that was <laughs> a big rate in the fact. And, and I think, and I think that's how he kind of um, he said picked us. You know? God, that is so nice, isn't it? It is so nice. Yeah. So at the end of this year, you've got a tour coming up, haven't you, as well? Yes. I've uh, got a wee tour um, up and down the country. Well, not up and down the country, but, yeah, uh, well, it is probably, yeah, so I'm looking forward to doing that. Um, I couldn't tell you all the dates off my hand, unfortunately. I'm really bad with remembering things, but um, we're doing a Glasgow Barlands, I know that, um, and oh, we're cool. playing... London, Islington, I think. Nandies in Blackpool, Bath, Sunderland, yeah. Glasgow, and Edin in Edinburgh. So they No, Aberdeen, is it not? Oh God, Aberdeen, yeah. yeah Sorry. Aberdeen. <laughs> so with the you've got this and this album that is going to be coming out very soon. And then oh, and then you then you've got a new you've got new material that you're going to be trying to record. Yeah. And then trying to record get gaps in this year and um, probably there is a couple of there's a few gaps in November that we can start recording because all we've done all this sort of pre-production for for the majority of the songs so we'll just go in and where and do back. you record now we've got a studio that we've kind of uh, which is kind of part of our management company as well so it's over in um it's an industrial estate um is it in Glasgow yeah, well, it's just at Paisley, in Paisley, near Paisley, next to Glasgow Airport. Nice. Sounds it's good. A great studio. That's where we recorded the last album, you know, and it was good fun. And uh, and look forward to doing it all over again. Yes, and absolutely. I look forward to writing, you know, well, letting people hear new material. But these songs, these acoustic songs that, that, that from the Carlton songs, you know, again, you know, talking about like having the pressure of, you know, of of doing songs. That was one of the sort of problems with me and the kind of thing of, you know, should I be able to sing these songs that Mark had sung and people's obviously gonna just compare you constantly. But I think I've carried them off really, really well and and um and the uh and the fan sort of reaction at the moment has been 
really, you know, genuinely pretty cool and, you know, I'm really enjoying it. So what's it like? Because you're on Cherry Red Records now, aren't you? Who are sort of a great label. To yeah. So is this your first time with Cherry Red? Yes, it is. I, I believe so. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> no, we, I love Cherry Red. They put out so many great albums and compilations and bits and pieces. So, um, yes, I think, yeah. So has it been Hopefully, a good... A yeah, good relationship so far. Yeah, it has been, yeah. And uh, we'll get to meet them properly because we're doing um we're doing a showcase next week in uh, London. And again, it's just uh, it's like hard rock cafe in London, just like five or six songs and obviously and I think that's where we're kind of sort of introduced to them and and you know, a few press people that are coming along and stuff like that. Where are you based, David? Are you kind of we're in Norwich, the UK. So there you go. I know you're not. Have you played in Norwich? Yeah, I have played in Norwich. Yeah, maybe, maybe not in the last tour, but maybe the tour before that, definitely. Yes. Yeah. So look, what would you say then to you, a 16-year-old self starting out, if you could have whispered something in their ear with all these decades of work and ups and downs and releases and talk, you know and all the people you've met is there anything that you would have just thought yeah that would have been a good good bit of advice or that would have been worth knowing be uh, being a bit more assertive i think just you know and you know feel like you know you shouldn't have to follow the orders or the rules the regulations of what People are telling you just go with what you believe in, what your heart is believing in. And sometimes I kind of faltered along the way, and those mistakes can not ruin your life, but you just takes you in a different path. Yes. You did know, you did it did it take a while for you to feel like yes, I can call myself an artist or a musician? <laughs> I still don't call myself an artist. No, not a musician for that matter. Just a chancer. Just the chanter. But did that did that slightly hinder you though for a while? Not not thinking actually, I'm I'm better than I keep telling myself. I am, you know, yeah, I am I, this is well, a I'll, I've been doing I'll, it long enough now. So yeah, I, I, there is a confidence and there's an inner confidence with me. But I, I I'm not like I think there's some people that tell me like in my past that. Oh, you were a wee confident, cocky little shit. And I'm like, no, I wasn't. I was never like that. You know, <laughs> I was never. And I, you know, and I remember like getting asked to do um, things like, you know, bass guitar magazine and stuff like that. And, and then be asking me questions of what sort of gauges, I don't know what gauge of strengths may I use. I'd, I just play the thing. I just don't, I don't really concentrate on that, <laughs> you know. And he's, you know, okay, what's your favourite? Oh, just play a, a precision bass. If it's not that, I'll play a, a music man. And it's just like, that. you can see the interview just like kind of, and that's how I kind of feel about things that when it comes to the songs, I take them very seriously. You know, that's my heart and soul was in it. You know, um, but, uh, but yeah, I think if, if, Myself was going back to my 15-year-old sort of self, and I think that would be the things I would be saying to him, just like, you know, be clever and just look out for... Because there's so many, you know, you 
there's so many sort of obstructions along the way in the music industry, you know. They used, yes. to, they used to say it was the second worst industry to politics, the music industry, you know. Um, I don't think it really is in there now, but, but yeah, I think it just being a bit more assertive, I think that's what it would have been. Yes. And have you ever sort of played any material from your famous 0141 album? Is, or does that uh, get completely yeah, forgotten? Well, it's funny you saying that. Yeah, Crazy You is definitely on the, the Carlton Songs album, the, the, you know, the, um, and it's a good version of it. And that's probably the only half-decent song that I kind of liked on that record. You know, all the rest I did like as in demo form, but not not the way they were recorded. Yes. Do you think you'll ever go back and re-record it? Somebody's asked me, you know, a fan has asked me that recently. Um, I don't know. It might be quite a good... I'd, I'd love to go back. I've, do you know what? I do have the 8-track machine over in the studio over in Morse Code, and I've got a lot of the cassettes. I mean, I'll be... Dis- <coughs> I will definitely be taking a lot of time to try and go through all of them, though. And there's a definite, definitely all the demos are there. Right. But I'm talking about, I would need to recreate it, but just with the ideas and kind of, you know, the parts and stuff like that, I would definitely like to look at that one day. Yes, that would be amazing. Yes, well, it's all go. Well, look, thank you ever so much for your time. This is, And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview, just in case you were wondering. I'm sure you worked that one out. Anyway, a massive thank you to Dante for giving me the time for that interview. That was uh, with Gunn, who have got a new single out, which is uh, the... Yes, it's all on Cherry Red Records that we were just talking about there. This is all coming out in October. And also some live dates, um, yeah, starting off in Bradford at the end of November through to, yes, from the 1st of December, London, and then on to Aberdeen towards the 11th. Um, so if you get a chance, go and look at their website. It's easy to do. Just Google Gun Club. No, not Gun Club, not at all. Gun Band. And uh, it will all be there. So there you have it. This has been David East for the C86 Show. And you can contact me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. That's uh, just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Also, all these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? So you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. True. Anyway, have a great week and uh, stay safe.